I'm really pleased to introduce Mr. Michael Grunwald. Michael Grunwald is a senior national correspondent for Time Magazine, where he's written cover stories on topics ranging from the future of California to the person of the year profile of Ben Bernanke. He's the author of The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise. His new book is The New New Deal, a New York Times bestseller that has already been hailed by The Economist and The Guardian as the best book about the Obama administration. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Michael Grunwald. It's funny, I kind of had a feeling this would be a, a controversial book. It's, it's basically a revisionist history of the Obama stimulus and seems like just about everybody hates the Obama stimulus. Sometimes it feels like Obama hates it. He doesn't even say the word stimulus anymore. And it's kind of hard to blame him. A, a year after it passed, the percentage of Americans who believed that it had created any jobs was lower than the percentage of Americans who believed that Elvis is alive. Um, and anyway, when you, when you write a book that has the words change and Obama this close together on a book jacket, um, you know you're going to get some criticism. But, uh, and I, I know, you know so far I've been very lucky with the reviews, um, as Greg mentioned, and, uh, and I'm grateful, but I'm, I'm sure every author thinks this, but I think my book has gotten some of the weirdest criticism I've ever seen. Um, last month, a columnist for Bloomberg, he, he actually did, he did a lovely piece on the book, said all kinds of, you know, it's excellent, it's engaging, it's depressingly credible, which I thought was a funny, uh, funny description. But then he drops the bomb. He goes, there is one thing I find irritating about the book. I go, oh. it's the blurb on the back cover. Like, what? <laughs> so so this, guy, this guy's irked because my friend John Harris, who's the editor of Politico, he wrote a blurb. You know, it's a blurb. It says, you know, the book's awesome, you know, I'm awesome, you know, whatever you think of the guy's conclusions, it's, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. I don't know what he wrote. But, uh, but this guy wants to know what John thinks of my conclusions. He writes, is Grunwald's book an accurate depiction of stimulus politics and policies? Judging from the blurb, I have no idea. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, dude, it's a blurb, you know. I'm going to give you, let you in on a little publishing secret. Blurbs are bullshit. <laughs> um, judging from the blurb. The guy actually read the book. Like, why, why did he need to judge from the blurb? Anyway, it's not as bad as uh, a, a guy in the New Republic. This 23-year-old researcher did a blog post about my book, and he announced that he couldn't even get past the first four words. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I get it. It's kind of controversial, right? The new, new deal. Some people object to that. No, no, no. I'll, I'll quote him. It was so disturbing, so Washington, that I had to put the book down. Addressed to a woman that I can only assume is Grunwald's wife, it reads as follows. To Christina, my stimulus. <laughs> this twit was trashing my dedication page. <laughs> Like, I mean, I, I don't think the terrorists who wanted to kill Salman Rushdie ever said anything bad about his dedication page. Like, I can only assume is Grunwald's wife. It's like, yeah, yeah, I can only assume you're single, dude. Right, so now I'm just waiting for some critic to come after my table of contents, right? I'm really disappointed in his ISBN number. 
All right. I, sh- I know I should talk about the book, but, but I, I got to read just a little more of that blog post. If Christina really is his stimulus, does that mean she prevented him from collapsing into a depression? I mean, yeah. If we accept the Merriam-Webster definition of stimulus as something that rouses or incites to activity, Grunwald's note comes across as a strangely explicit display of wonky ribaldry. <laughs> yeah. Come visit us in South Beach, kid. We'll, uh, we'll show you some wonky ribaldry. <laughs> All right, all right, Obama's stimulus, the, uh, the $800 billion American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. He signed it less than a month after he took office, and it really did prevent America from collapsing into a depression, and it really has roused all kinds of activity. It launched over 100,000 projects to upgrade roads, bridges, subways, sewer plants, military bases, fish hatcheries, Indian reservations, you name it. And it really is transforming America's approach to energy, education, healthcare, transportation, and more. It's one of the most important and least understood pieces of legislation in American history, the short-term recovery part as well as the long-term reinvestment part. And it's the purest distillation of what Obama meant by change. It's a down payment on just about all of his major campaign promises. The story of the stimulus I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm biased, but I, I think it's a really great story. But it's, it's also a microcosm of the Obama era. I think it's the best way to understand the president, his policies, his approach to politics, his achievements, and his difficulty marketing those achievements in a city that's gone nuts. It's also the best way to understand his enemies. And this book really has the first documentation of the secret meetings where Republicans devised their strategy of no before Obama even took office. It's funny, I I don't think I could have written this book if I still lived in Washington. The the groupthink is just too strong. And it's almost impossible to overstate the the power of the Beltway conventional wisdom that the stimulus was a pathetic joke. It's just totally uncool to talk about it unironically. It shows that you just don't get it. But fortunately, in, in 2010, I was, I was 1,000 miles away, so I was only dimly aware of this prevailing stimulus narrative that it was $800 billion worth of levitating trains to Disneyland and mob museums and all kinds of other nonsense that's not in the actual stimulus. I, I did become aware, because I write a lot about the environment, that the stimulus included $90 billion for clean energy. You might have heard about that last night, except uh, Paul Ryan called it $90 billion for green pork. <laughs> but but that, that $90 billion has, has leveraged another $100 billion in private capital. I mean, at the time, it just seemed like a typo. I mean, the feds had been spending maybe 2 or $3 billion a year on clean energy, And Obama comes up with $90 billion before his aides even know where the bathrooms are in the West Wing. We're talking about unprecedented rivers of cash in wind, solar, geothermal, and other renewables, energy efficiency in every imaginable form, advanced biofuels, electric vehicles, cutting-edge research, a smarter grid, cleaner coal, factories to make all this green stuff in the United States. I mean, it was just clearly the biggest energy bill in the history of the planet. And so it, it got me kind of curious about what else was in the stimulus. So I, I did some dogged investigative reporting. 
<laughs> like a Google search. Um, and, I, and I remember I had this aha moment because I saw that the stimulus had, had started Race to the Top. Now, I hadn't covered Race to the Top. I just knew that it was a really huge deal in the education reform world. But I had no idea that it was a stimulus program. Um, I, did a, I did a talk in Washington at a, at a think tank, and I asked people to raise their hands if they knew that it was part of the stimulus. And like three people raised their hands. That was in Washington. Um, anyway, it was, it was really obvious. I mean, this was, it was high-speed rail. It was health IT. It was, you know, all kinds of things that people had been talking about doing for decades, and suddenly the stimulus went ahead and funded. It was, it was clear that this was, this was just a gigantic story and hidden in plain sight. I mean, most of the stimulus was standard Keynesian stimulus, right? A response to this unprecedented downturn where GDP was crashing at 9%. Essentially, we were in a depression. And, uh, and the stimulus pumped money into the economy through tax cuts, $300 billion worth of tax cuts for 95% of the country, aid to states to prevent massive layoffs of teachers and cops, unemployment benefits and other help for victims of the Great Recession, and, uh, and basic infrastructure projects. But then there was, there was $27 billion with a B to computerize our pen and paper healthcare system Right? I mean, we've got online dating, we've got online banking, but still when you go to the doctor's office, you've got to fill out 30 forms and, and, uh, right? and then he can kill you with his chicken scratch handwriting. It's ridiculous. People have known forever that this, that this was insane, that it, would, that it would improve care and reduce costs to, uh, to put this stuff online. And here the stimulus is, is going to get all of us an electronic medical record by 2017. I mean, this was... I mean, I feel crazy. It, like coming from Florida, I feel like I'm coming to visit my high-speed rail money. But, uh, but uh, this is going to be the first, you know, it's America's first high-speed rail network. It's the biggest transportation initiative since the interstates. Um, it's got the, beyond high-speed rail, there are the largest infrastructure investments since the Eisenhower administration. We're extending our ex existing high-speed high speed internet network to underserved communities. It's kind of like a modern deal on the New Deal's a uh, modern version of the New Deal's rural electrification. But it's not like they're throwing a few bucks at it. They're throwing seven billion bucks at it. It included America's biggest infusion of new research money ever, largest anti-poverty program since, since uh, the, the Great Society, modernized unemployment insurance, which really hadn't changed since the New Deal, launched brand new approaches to preventing homelessness, financing public works, overseeing government spending, Oh, and, and by the way, uh, all the top economic forecasters agree that it did help stop that terrifying freefall. I mean, at the rate we were going, we would have lost an entire Canadian economy worth of output in 2009. We were, as we're starting to hear finally, you know, job losses peaked around 800,000 jobs a month in the month of January 2009. Then in February, they passed the stimulus. And that spring, the jobs numbers, which were still quite grim, but they had the biggest quarterly improvement in 30 years. Uh, the general consensus in the economics profession is that the stimulus at its peak added 2 to 4% to GDP. That's the difference between contraction and growth. So I, uh, I told all this to my editors. <laughs> uh, guys, any of you watch HBO, the, the newsroom? 
right? You know the uh, that blogger kid who's always trying to pitch that story about how Bigfoot is real? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> I, uh, they're like, the stimulus? Come on, unemployment's 9%. What else is there to say? What, are you going to say things could have been worse? I was kind of like, yeah, well, you know, things could have been worse. I, I actually flew up to, to New York to make the ca- my case in person, and you could just see their eyes glazing over. And I told them that I felt like I was a reporter in 1938 trying to convince them to do a story on this obscure presidential initiative called the New, this New Deal, right? To their credit, they, they eventually did let me write a story about how the stimulus was changing America, which did lead to the book. And they, they let me keep writing articles about this bizarro world stimulus that was on time, under budget, virtually fraud-free, full of good government reforms, and unlike the stimulus, everyone else was making fun of. And before the stimulus passed, the fraud experts said that, uh, that you could expect 5 to 7% of it to be stolen. And I interviewed Earl Devaney, who's the guy who's basically the watchdog for the stimulus in charge of basically following the money. And he told me he was flabbergasted by how clean it's been. So far, the the fraud numbers that have been documented are 0.001% of the stimulus. He said, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican, a Democrat, a communist. You've got to be excited about this. I mean, it really is. This is a big deal. I mean, the stimulus is more than 50% bigger in constant dollars than the entire New Deal. And this was just one bill, right? And the New Deal went on for years, and it was dozens of pieces of legislation. And I do, you know, it wasn't just a cute title to sell books. This, this really is a new New Deal. You know, it's not another New Deal. I mean, it didn't create giant armies of government workers at alphabet agencies like the WPA and the CCC. It didn't establish new entitlements like social security or deposit insurance. It didn't create big government because FDR already did that. And really, I mean, Obama is not a New Deal liberal. It's kind of it's hard to imagine the politics of a modern CCC. I mean, really, do you think we could round up unemployed, millions of unemployed men in the cities and ship them off to rural work camps for a dollar a day? And it's just not going to happen. And the critics often say that, you know, while the, the New Deal left behind iconic monuments, right, the Grand Coulee Dam, Skyline Drive, Fort Knox, the stimulus is just going to leave behind a mundane legacy of sewage plants, repaved potholes, state employees who would have been laid off without it. I saw Charles Krauthammer, the uh, conservative columnist, wrote recently, name one thing of any note created by Ni- Obama's Niagara of borrowed money. A modernized electric grid? Nothing of the sort. Well, in fact, the stimulus is creating its own icons. And for starters, a modernized electric grid. <laughs> there's, a, there's $11 billion for a, for a smart grid that people have been talking about forever and now is actually happening with 10 million smart meters and synchro phasers and automate, automated substations. And there's, it's a different kind of icon, right? The America's largest wind farm. Uh, half dozen of the world's largest solar farms, an entirely new battery industry for electric vehicles created from scratch with 30 new factories, an eco-friendly new Coast Guard headquarters. Yeah, there's, there's no Grand Coulee Dam, but there's the largest dam removal project in American history uh, t- over on the Elwar River. It's already restoring salmon flows. And the main legacy of this new New Deal, like the New Deal, 
will be change. And this, this is a book about change. So let me talk a little bit about Obama, because it was really his vision of change. I'd, I'd like to reveal some new pathology or psychological theory of the man, but at the risk of you know, scaring you all away from buying this, um, you know, the, the Obama in these pages is basically the same no drama, big ego, cerebral, low blood pressure, comfortable in his skin, somewhat aloof, almost comically reasonable alpha male that you'll find in most non-insane biographies of the guy. I mean, he's droll and he's chill. I, I do, I think I tell some fun stories. I mean, in October 2008, after Lehman Brothers collapsed and the McCain campaign was imploding, Obama, he quips to one of his advisors, he goes, are we sure it's too late to hand this pile of crap to McCain and the party that created it? <laughs> and the advisor says, uh, yeah, it's probably too late. And Obama goes, well, at least we're buying low. <laughs> yeah, as it turned out, not low enough. I, uh, I quote Larry Summers in December 2008. He was like, FDR was lucky. He had three years of depression before he took over. Everybody knew it was Hoover's depression. In, uh, in December, when, uh, when another economic aide, Christy Romer, called in with the first jobs report, she goes, oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. President-elect. The numbers are just horrible. He goes, well, it's not your fault. Yet. <laughs> at, uh, at one point, uh, David Axelrod, you know, his political guru, he's there in the Oval Office, and he goes, you know, Mr. President, I, I just wonder what it would be like to govern in good times. And Obama just laughed. Are you kidding me? <laughs> good times, we never would have got the job. But uh, look, what, what my book does that I think uh, a lot of other these sort of fly-on-the-wall books don't is I try to look at Obama through the lens of his beliefs and his policies. You know, I do get, I think, pretty deep inside the White House and the back rooms of Capitol Hill, but I also go into the bowels of the Energy Department's weatherization division, which was actually known as the Turkey Farm. You know, I go to local high-speed rail meetings in the Central Valley. And yeah, I did visit that way too fancy Solyndra factory. But my, my novel approach to evaluating this president was to try to figure out what he was doing. And uh, again, I'm going to undersell. But this is kind of the most important thing you should know about Barack Obama. He's mostly tried to do what he said he was going to do. He actually came into office with a remarkably well-defined theory of the case. And he's tried to put that theory into practice. You know, people didn't pay a lot of attention to his campaign agenda in 2008, you know, partly because you know, it was mostly the standard Democratic agenda of reversing the Bush era and investing in the future, and partly because you know, the media was more interested in his race and his crazy pastor and the ads comparing him to Paris Hilton. But look, he's a he's a interested in policy. He's a policy guy, but he's not a policy entrepreneur. And his campaign wasn't about new ideas, right? It was about that message of change, and then that kind of aspirational "we can believe in" agenda, right? The sense that maybe he would follow through on the old ideas that never seemed to go anywhere. And he mostly has. You know, the one big exception is his ideas about changing Washington. Obviously, those didn't really pan out. 
One of the dangers of promising bipartisan cooperation is that the other party can turn you into a promise breaker just by saying no. But, uh, but I think that really has sort of led to this guy who kind of campaigned as this you know, change the system outsider has ended up governing as a work the system insider. Now, I think some of the juicier stories in the book are, are my fly on the wall accounts of Obama versus the Republicans. But I thought, just for kicks, I'd read just a little bit of my take on Obama versus Hillary, because I actually think it helps explain the last four years. The case for Obama was not a substantive case for changing policies. Hillary was making a similar case with a better resume. The case for Obama was a political case for why those policies never seemed to change. It implied that Hillary was part of the problem, that America couldn't afford another decade of Clinton wars, that the political pettiness and nastiness that exploded during the Clinton era was the fundamental obstacle to fundamental change. Hillary's one-word explanation for the persistence of the status quo was Republicans. Obama's was Washington. The endless spin cycles, insult industries, and poll-driven platitudes that made tough choices impossible. As a symbol and a participant, Hillary was inextricably linked to that Washington gridlock machine. The bickering and parsing. The eternal boomer-driven relitigation of the 60s. The case for Hillary was that she knew how to fight Republicans, that she was comfortable in the muck. The case for Obama was that he could move politics beyond the muck. But Obama's ideas about changing politics were always a means to the end of changing policies. In Springfield, when he announced that he was running for president, he listed the four main problems he was running to solve. A dependence on oil that threatens our future a healthcare crisis, schools where too many children aren't learning, and families struggling pay paycheck to paycheck despite working as hard as I can. He argued that real solutions would be impossible until Washington moved beyond the rage and the noise. This is Obama. What stopped us from meeting these challenges is not the absence of sound policies and sensible plans. What stopped us is the failure of leadership the smallness of our policies, politics, the ease with which we're distracted by the petty and trivial, our chronic avoidance of tough decisions, our preference for scoring cheap political points instead of rolling up our sleeves and building a working consensus to tackle big problems. That was the essence of Obama's case against Hillary Clinton. And it was wrong. It turned out that it was possible to make progress on long-term problems, even while Washington remained distracted by the petty and the trivial. The proof was in the Recovery Act, the stimulus. It produced dramatic change on energy, healthcare, education, and the squeeze on struggling families, Obama's four pillars of his new foundation for growth, without any working consensus or any pause in the scoring of cheap political points. Look. Obama took office during an economic cataclysm, and he decided that in an emergency, changing the country was more important than changing the capital. And change required 60 votes in the United States Senate. So the central drama of this book, it's, it's literally the central section of the book, is how Obama pushed all this change into law. Now, it wasn't clean, and it wasn't pretty. <laughs> you know, Rahm Emanuel was in the middle of it, so it's not really suitable for young ears. 
But the, the whole stimulus debate is really a case study in Obamaism. To the disillusionment addicts of the left, and I apologize to those of you in the room, it, uh, it proved that Obama was just like every other politician, more interested in cutting deals than chasing dreams. To the fever swamps of the right, it revealed Obama was as a Euro-socialist radical. You know, it's funny. You know, Republicans never really explained how the $715 billion stimulus that Paul Ryan voted for was good public policy, while Obama's $787 billion stimulus was freedom-crushing statism. But the nice thing about being in the minority was you don't really have to explain that kind of thing. I mean, in reality, the stimulus was early evidence that Obama was pretty much what he said he was, a data-oriented, left-of-center technocrat who's above all a pragmatist, comfortable with compromise, disinclined to sacrifice the good in pursuit of the ideal. It was the first evidence that despite all his talk, all that flowery talk during the campaign, he understood that bills that don't pass Congress don't produce change. And the stimulus is producing real change. It's not producing perfection. It's made things better, and better is better than worse. Before the stimulus, less than 20% of doctors used electronic medical records. Again, as I said, by 2017, all Americans will have one. The stimulus directly lifted more than 7 million Americans out of poverty. That homelessness prevention program I mentioned, it kept 1.2 million people off the streets. So the homeless population actually declined in 2009 after the worst recession since the Depression. If half of those people served by the program had ended up homeless, the population would have doubled. I write about an obscure program called Build America Bonds. Uh, it financed $180 billion worth of local infrastructure projects. It was like a stimulus tucked inside the stimulus. And the only time it's gotten any press was when the New York Times put on the front page that Goldman Sachs was, in the august opinion of the New York Times, making too many fees off, off, the, off the bond finance. Um, you know, within, within a, it was a new bond product. Within a month, the fees were just like any other fees. And, uh, and we get $180 billion worth of public works that nobody noticed. The biggest change is green energy. Um, you know, I did write that cover story about, about California where I talked about how you guys are sort of the tip of the spear. Um, well, now this has sort of launched a clean energy revolution for the rest of the country. We've doubled renewable power. We uh, created that electric vehicle battery industry. We've jump-started the smart grid, no matter what Charles Krauthammer thinks. I have a smart meter on my own house in, in South Beach. Uh, we've reduced our dependence on foreign oil to the lowest level since 1995, and our carbon emissions are dropping, even though the economy is growing. But of course, all you hear about is the Solyndra scandal, which, as I explain in nauseating detail in the book, is not a scandal. It's, uh, this was a company that, was, that raised a billion dollars in private capital, was chosen by the Bush administration from among 143 applicants to get the first loan. It's funny. It's supposed to symbolize how solar power is a mirage. Mitt Romney called it imaginary. But thanks to the stimulus, solar installations have increased more than 600% since 2009. Look, obviously the, uh, the economy is still struggling. 
And it's fair to point out that Obama and the stimulus haven't lived up to the initial hype. But, uh, you know, nothing in life except parenthood lives up to the hype. So, you know, now, now Romney has put the stimulus at the center of his presidential campaign. He talked about how half of the, in the, the debate last week, he talked about how half of the companies that got green energy money have gone bankrupt. And you, you may have heard my head explode from 3,000 miles away. In fact, there have been probably 10,000 companies have gotten money. I'm aware of four that have gone bankrupt, which if my arithmetic has not failed me is less than half. You know, there, there ought to be a great debate about government intervention in various sectors of the economy and how government should respond to a downturn. I do try to point out that most of the items in the Recovery Act enjoyed bipartisan support until, I don't know, about January 20th, 2009. It's funny, uh, every 2008 presidential can candidate proposed a stimulus package. The largest was Mitt Romney's. But, you know, it's still legitimate to debate the lessons going forward. I just, I'm trying to push for it to be a debate about the actual stimulus and not an imaginary stimulus that outsourced wind turbines to China when, in fact, we not only doubled wind power in the United States thanks to the stimulus, but we doubled the domestic con manufacturing content of U.S. turbines. We insourced wind turbines from China. You know, to hear Mitt talk, you'd think that you know, and Paul Ryan, that this was just, you know, it was all about shoveling money to cronies when there hasn't been a single example of a corrupt deal. I actually expose what I think is the first example of inappropriate political pressure by the Obama White House in my book. Um, but, you know, uh, <laughs> I think maybe, maybe Mitt hasn't read it yet because I haven't heard him talk about it. It may have also been that the, the company that they exerted pressure on behalf of is John Boehner and Mitch McConnell's favorite company. It's located in Ohio and Kentucky. So look, this is, a, this is gonna be another election about change. And the central question is about whether government is capable of contributing to positive change. It's funny, the stimulus has become exhibit A for the Republican argument that it can't, which is weird. It, it ought to be exhibit A for the argument that it can. Um, as, uh, as Earl Devaney, the stimulus watchdog, said to me, he's like, you'd have to be crazy to do some, to pull shenanigans or try to steal this stimulus money, right? Steal some other money. Everybody's watching this money. Look, I, I, I realize that at this point I probably sound like an Obama cheerleader. It's, uh, it's kind of an uncomfortable role for me. The Republicans did put out a five-page memo from this book, and it wasn't a rebuttal. It was, uh, it was five pages worth of stuff that they thought made, made Obama look bad. But look, I, I realize that ultimately this is a sympathetic book to Obama and the stimulus. It's kind of an uncomfortable role for me. There's a, there's a funny scene towards the end where I'm talking to Vice President Biden who oversaw the stimulus, and he had just let me sit in on a cabinet meeting devoted to the stimulus, and he's just giving me a hard time. He's like, oh, I've read all your articles. You're the only guy who wrote anything remotely positive. <laughs> I told him, I'm like, you know, I'm usually Debbie Downer. I'm not Little Mary Sunshine. Um, he just laughs at me. He's like, ah, I took them to bed. I slept with them. <laughs> and I, I really did not get into journalism to write the kind of stories that Joe Biden would want to cuddle with. Um, but, but seriously, the, the facts are the facts. Uh, Joe pointed out a few of them last night. Uh, my, my, my stories only look glowing compared to the ridiculous gotchas without a gotcha that pass for stimulus journalism. 
So I hope you'll, uh, you'll read it for yourselves. With that, I'll, I'll take questions. Why do you think the administration has been so reluctant to promote all the good things that have come from the stimulus? They talk about the auto bailout, which was just as unpopular a while ago. They talk about Obamacare, which was also unpopular. Um, you'll still never hear them say the S word. Um, they do, though, talk about the tax cuts, the middle class tax cuts that were in the stimulus, um, the expansion of Pell Grants that were in the stimulus, the expansion of renewable energy that was in the stimulus. Um, I think the, the short answer is that stimulus has become toxic. You know, it's like, uh, even though in the same way that people complain about government, even though they like Social Security and Medicare and the National Defense and the other, the FBI and the other things that government does, um, in the same way they like unemployment benefits and, you know, wind power and, uh, you know, aid to make sure that teachers don't get fired, um, that all the actual elements of the stimulus, but they don't like the stimulus. Um, so I think there's, th sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I think it was because it didn't bring the unemployment rate down as they promised it would. Is that well, it did bring the unemployment rate down almost exactly as they said it would. Um, the, uh, that sort of historic and historically stupid report that they put out in January 2009, before they even took office, actually, um, that forecast 8% unemployment if, you know, that, un that unemployment would stay under 8% if the stimulus passed. And I tell the story of that report in, you know, in kind of head-exploding detail. Um, but uh, but the main thing, you know, what they got wrong was the baseline, right? They, they, they thought the economy was here and that the unemployment was here and they thought uh, the stimulus would bring it down to here. In fact, unemployment was here and the stimulus <laughs> brought it down to here. Um, like they always say is we got the Delta right, which I always tell Jared Bernstein that they can put that on his tombstone. I got the Delta right, right? The change in unemployment rather than the level of unemployment. Um, you know, I think uh, that's a bad talking point for them. But the the question of like, you know, I always say, you know, are you better off than you were four years ago is actually an easy question for them. Because four years ago, the economy was in absolute freefall. And now it's just sort of meh, you know. But that's a lot better than absolute freefall. I always say that Mitt Romney, if he was smart, instead of asking, are you better off than you were four years ago, he'd ask, how you doing, <laughs> right? because times are still tough. And I think that is, you know, this was ultimately, it was a jobs bill that passed at a time when jobs were hemorrhaging. Um, and even a $2 trillion stimulus um, would have become, um, become unpopular because of that. And then when you add in, you know, the fact that they had just thrown $700 billion at the banks, um, the fact that Keynesian economics is sort of inherently kind of hard to understand, like really, Families and businesses are tightening our belts, and you're throwing $800 billion of borrowed money into the economy. The fact that Republicans did a really good of job of distorting it and making it sound like it was snowmaking machines in Duluth and sod on the mall and honeybee insurance, that Democrats didn't defend it, um, that they complained that it was too small or too many tax cuts or not shovel-ready enough, and that the media wasn't really interested in getting to the bottom of it. Right? They really blew the story as badly as they, they blew the, you know, the run-up to the war in Iraq. It's kind of hard to you know, 
should Obama be trying to change everybody's opinion about it? I mean, maybe, but he's decided that, that's, uh, that the cake is already baked. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the fact that all the candidates in 2008 were proposing stimulus plans. I think that's something that tends to get lost. So I'd like you to speculate. Now, how would the country look at the stimulus package not be passed? Um, and uh, what do you think Republicans would gain from that? There was a sense that, uh, you know, I do describe their obstruction strategy from the beginning. Um, and as I quoted George Voinovich, the senator from Ohio, on the record saying that if Obama was for it, we had to be against it. Um, but, uh, but I think they weren't that upset that it, <laughs> that it passed. They just didn't, they were, they were happy to have, uh, you know, they didn't want to be blamed for a depression. Um, and, uh, and they didn't want their fingerprints on the spending bill that was going to avoid it. Um, I do think, you know, it's hard to say, you know, you can't run a, you know, a double blind experiment of an unstimulated U.S. economy to see what would have happened if, uh, if we hadn't put $800 billion into it. But you have a pretty good idea. I mean, the there has been a lot of empirical work. You look at the they they gave two hundred billion dollars worth of aid to states, and basically states which mostly have balanced budget requirements, they canceled two hundred billion dollars worth of layoffs and cuts, and that would have you know that would have been de devastating. And all those hundreds of thousands of teachers who lost their jobs would have stop, you know, they wouldn't have been able to spend as much money at the grocery store, and then all those grocery clerks would have gotten laid off. And that's how death spirals continue. Um, I think there's really very strong evidence that, that, the, uh, that the stimulus put a floor, you know, that it, that it stopped the free fall and, and got us out of the ditch. Um, but, you know, it was a three million job solution to an eight million job problem. Um, and, uh, and, and was understood to be that at the time, although it wasn't understood just how horrific the problem was. But really, I mean, the, the crash of September 2008 was worse than the crash of 29. I mean, it was a, this was a, it was a scary time. And, and at the time, the official GDP numbers were negative 4%, which is horrific, but they were later revised to negative 9% which is by far the biggest revision ever. And that's, you know, that's a depression. I mean, if you think of being off by five percentage points, I mean, that's like if, uh, if right now, instead of growing 1%, we were actually growing 6%. Like, maybe you haven't realized it, but we are booming. I mean, it's, that's, that's big, it's that big a difference. So um, things, it's hard to know exactly, you know, would we have gotten the 25% unemployment that we got in the... Uh, in the depression, there's certainly no evidence of that. But the whole point of these free falls is that when people lose confidence, um, you know, can go downhill fast. Can you share with us how the stimulus funds were distributed and how the average small business owner would have learned about how to access these stimulus funds? And then, you know, last night in the debate, the vice president talked about how uh, Ryan voted against the stimulus, but he still supported constituents who wanted access to the funds. And then do you think if the funds were distributed in a different way that maybe the program would have been a little bit more successful, or at least the marketing would have been more successful? Sure. Well, let me, uh, oh, those, 
Wow, those are like five really good questions. Um, let me first do Ron, uh, for about Paul Ryan because that's one of my. Um, I always try to point out that you know not only did he go begging for stimulus money, and you got to read those letters because it's like you know this program will create you know green jobs in my district. It's like oh come on, um, but uh, he also I it's. He did vote for a $715 billion stimulus plan that is really almost identical. It has a little less green energy. It has a little more pork for the Army Corps of Engineers. It gets rid of a few liberal programs like, you know, AmeriCorps and, uh, you know, money for artists. Um, but otherwise, it's really similar. So uh, if they had spent the money differently. Now, one of the things I talk about in the book, like, you, you'd ask sort of how it broke down. Um, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars in aid to states, you know, so that Rick Perry can balance his budget and then yell at, at Congress for not balancing their budget, um, but also to prevent really terrible Medicaid cuts and, and layoffs. Um, $300 billion in tax cuts. Ninety. I say overall probably about $150 billion worth of sort of transformative stuff between the green energy, the health IT, um, education reform, um, you know, uh, broadband, um, you know, high-speed rail, uh, the kind of stuff that's, that's really different. Um, and then a big chunk, more probably $100 billion for unemployment benefits, food stamps, um, expanded Pell Grants, uh, you know, things that that help the people who, who most need it. And fortunately, which leads to another one of your questions, um, what the economists say is that when you help the people who need it most, uh, the good thing is that they're the ones who are also most likely to spend it because they can't afford to save it. Um, so it's the best stimulus, too, um, which is not to say that everything in here was good stimulus. There was one seven, $70 billion chunk for, uh, that was basically to make sure the middle class doesn't get hit by the alternative minimum tax, which is a fix they do every year and they would have done anyway. Um, so that was like $70 billion wasted. Um, it wasn't really stimulus, uh, but Olympia Snow wouldn't have voted for the stimulus otherwise and they wouldn't have gotten 60 votes, so they had to put it in. Um, in general, while there's all kinds of, I mean, this is a really big bill and there's stuff I don't like in it and there's stuff I make fun of, um, in general, it's like economically, this was pretty much the right approach. There was a lot, lot dumped into the economy fast, um, but they didn't put $800 billion into the economy fast because there's only so much pig you can shove through the federal python. Um, and that there wasn't, and it's, and it's, you know, you don't want to just fall off the cliff too, right? The idea was to provide some stimulus for the economy for a few years. And it's done that. And even things that weren't stimulus, like people point to health IT, um, which didn't really start spending out until 2011. So technically it wasn't really stimulus. But health IT is now the, the fastest growing industry in America. And even before the money started spending out, people started inventing new software and new hardware to, to get ready to apply for that money. Um, the number two fastest growing industry is solar. So, you know, I think you can always quibble. There are some parts of it that didn't fend out, spend out fast enough. There's some parts of it that probably weren't as stimulative as you'd like it to be. But 
there wasn't a lot of changes that you can imagine that would have been politically possible that would have had a huge impact on the on the economics. The politics, I mean, you would have sent everybody a check rather than dribbling out the tax cuts through their uh, through their withholding, right? You know, you pro probably everybody in this room got a tax cut, and probably less than 10% of you recognized it. That's what the, those are the national numbers. Um, Rahm Emanuel went running around saying, we're denying ourselves an Ed McMahon moment, right? That kind of squeal of publisher's clearinghouse pleasure when you get your check in the mail from Barack. But, uh, you know, so that was very bad politics. But, um, you know, I, in general, I think the real political lesson of this is try not to have huge financial and economic meltdowns. Hi, I'm Wita Hayden. Um, I've got a question that's a little bit uh, off, a little bit off topic, but it's related. I wanted to know what you thought about the um, the uh, future of journalism, where now we kind of live in a, a society where things are a little bit faster paced. With uh, you know, a new blogger can pop up tomorrow, and there's 24-hour uh, news networks that are now commonplace where they used to be new, and it seems like that. Only uh, an article that's critical about a program like the stimulus gets top billing. And you only hear about something that's actually negative, where I remember when I used to read newspapers previously, it was an educational experience where I can actually learn something new or is a full thought out article. Now it seems like someone with that I have no idea about their credentials can just come up with uh, you know, something overnight and it'll get top billing. Like my example would be like if there was a one ton haystack and a needle was, find it, you know, was found in it, the headline would be dangerous needle found in haystack. Right. You know? I actually kept a gotcha file. It said gotcha on it, um, where I would just put in the ridiculous gotchas. Because investigative reporters, something about the stimulus turned them into runaway prosecutors. Um, because you, know, you, don't, you don't get a Pulitzer for an investigation that doesn't find any wrongdoing. Um, and you don't make page one for a story saying like, yeah, actually, that program's pretty much doing what it said it was going to do. Um, uh, so there was, there was this one reporter at USA Today who I've heard is actually a pretty good investigative reporter, and I talked to him, and his thing was, you know, what he said was basically like, look, I don't do good news. Um, but, uh, but he took it to such a ludicrous extent. So he'd write a story one week that would be, it would say, uh, you know, the st he'd, he'd, he had, he'd love doing databases. So he'd, he'd show through crunching the numbers that the stimulus was spending a disproportionate amount of money in rural areas, which is kind of interesting. Except then the next week, he'd have the same story except saying that it was spending a disproportionate amount of money in, in urban areas. And then the next week, he would write about how the stimulus was too slow to spend out. And then this, I'm not making this up, actual headline. This was after the same guy who had written that the stimulus was too slow to spend. He wrote, traffic set to slow as stimulus gears up, right? Because there's going to be all these guys at work, you know, who get jobs, and they're going to be doing construction projects on the road, and that's going to create traffic, right? It's like in every, finding the cloud and every silver lining. Um, so I always say, like, you mentioned the, uh, a couple of trends in journalism, and I'm not sure they're all related. Um, I do think the sort of quickening of the news cycle has created pressures, or at least has, has, uh, has reduced incentives to be the kind of dork that I am. Um, you know, it's like, huh, 
maybe I'll spend, take a couple years writing, you know, trying to get to the bottom of where this money actually went. Um, there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of incentive to that when you have to write a story every 20 minutes. Um, not just the random bloggers with no credibility, but the my old colleagues at the Washington Post too. Um, you know, they have to churn it out. And there's there's not as much time or incentive to try to go deep and and t- and and uh, separate yourself from the pack. Um, that said, like you know, it wasn't just the. I mean, I, I say this in the book, and I, I I love the Washington Post, but I mean they've been prime offenders on like they you know, and they're still I think about as credible as news organizations get. But they completely screwed the pooch on the stimulus, particularly the green energy stuff. I mean, it's just been ridiculous. And they just did another one the other day, and it's uh, you know about uh, you know about Gore's investments in in clean energy. But but which wasn't. I mean, I go through some of it in the book, but you should see the stuff they've written about. You know, trying to like like the another great example is uh, what's his name Steve Steve Wesley, right the. Uh, the he's a big VC here in in California. He uh, he he's always referred to now as uh, as like a player in the Solyndra scandal, um, and then and he's an Obama fundraiser. So it's like oh you know a Solyndra player raising money for Obama. Well, his role in the Solyndra scandal was he wrote an email saying like hey I think the Solyndra company is trouble. I don't think the president should go visit that company. Now, obviously, this guy was not calling the shots, right? Because then Obama went anyway and visited it. You know, he should have listened to Steve Wesley. If only, uh, if only he was the puppet master. Um, you can see you've, uh, you've touched one of my... It's, it's sad. What's the, you know, um, you know, obviously, I have, many of my best friends are in the media, um, and many of them live in Washington, and some of them seem sort of offended by my book, but um, but they blew it, and and you can actually see now that the there's already the narrative is starting to change, um, and and it's like yesterday never happened. They don't say the stimulus, which we had always described as a joke, um, but actually did a lot of good. They just talk about it, and you know. And I'm glad, but now they're talking about it in much more measured terms, as if, you know, as if they hadn't been trashing it for the last four years. Do you think that the the stroke of the program was maybe too broad for the dollars that they threw at it? Um, you know, I think the one that pops out in my mind just from familiarity is that, you know, they there's you know a few billion dollars thrown at high speed rail, and the California high speed rail price tag is ninety billion dollars. Um, you know, do you think that it was enough? Down to sixty eight now, right? Well, yeah, sure. Um, but do you think that they should have spent more money? Do you think they should have maybe tried to do less with the money they did spend? Do you think it was a good balance? It's ridiculous that there's catfish, you know, subsidies for catfish farmers in the stimulus. Um, but, you know, Blanche Lincoln needed, wanted her catfish subsidies and, and uh, you know, so, and they needed 60 votes in the Senate. Um, so there's definitely a little bit of that stuff. There are the people in the White House called them cats and dogs. Um, but it is kind of broad, but, uh, but this goes a little bit to that uh, the, the pig and the python um, analogy. Um, take, 
like what's something random? Like for instance, there's money for veterans cemeteries and you'd probably say like, well, you know, is veterans, you know, rehabbing veteran cemeteries, is that, you know, is that the most important thing to do? Um, maybe we should have just spent it all on, on highway projects. But, you know, after you do, like say they did, I, th- I think they did 12,000 highway projects through the, uh, through the stimulus. Number 12,001 probably was not as A, shovel-ready, and B, even like as needed as number one on the, uh, on the veteran cemetery list. Um, so this was really in terms of getting the money out fast and doing stuff that actually needed to be done. Um, it made some sense to spread it around. That said, it did create, you know, particularly when, you know, when when you're doing more, you know, a couple hundred thousand projects around the country, it provides more targets. Um, you know, maybe they should have just done, you know, it would have been less controversial maybe to just send everybody tax cuts, um, but it would have provided less stimulus and uh and you know it would have that wouldn't have gotten 60 votes either so um ultimately they sort of uh, i don't want to make it sound like everything is predetermined um but i have trouble imagining vastly different stimulus that that passed you know they did they tried to do a big uh um they tried to do a big nationwide school building you know school building and retrofitting there was going to be 10 billion dollars for that susan collins of maine you know, she was she was one of the three Republicans voted yes, and she didn't want it. So they said, "All right, so we'll just do half of it." No, she didn't want it. So there was no big school building initiative. Um, that's how some of this stuff happened. I mean, high speed rail. I think you know part of the idea is that if if they get this cal, you know, it was only supposed to be one of the bullet trains. My governor killed ours. That was supposed to be the first one. I think part of the idea is. You know, if they get the stake, you know, once you get that first stake in the ground, it's hard to pull it up. Um, and that once you get some of it built, the private sector will want to build a lot of it. Um, but also, remember, bullet trains aren't the only part of the high-speed rail program. Um, they funded it in 31 states. And the Midwest, you know, they're going to cut an, they're gonna cut an hour off off travel times between Chicago and St. Louis. And that'll be, that should be done next year. Um, so, you know, the idea is to provide benefits. It's not always the way it's been portrayed as if, like, we're suddenly going to become Japan in terms of rail. Um, but I think, you know, you can kind of make a case for almost everything in there. I want to thank you for coming tonight. Um, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here because I like Obama. Uh, I just wish that he could sell his accomplishments better. But one of the biggest criticisms we hear about Obama, the Obama administration and the stimulus is that it's just increasing our debt. It's you know it's spending borrowed money that we never really have the intention or capabilities of paying back. I wanted to ask you if you think this debt uh, will possibly lead to an even bigger economic crash in the future. I mean, first of all, I mean there is sort of two problems, right? There's the deficit and the debt. And I always hear like, oh, the stimulus blew up the deficit. Um, well, this this Obama inherited a 1.2 trillion dollar deficit. It's now less than that. Um, and of the one. Now it's like one trillion and change of that deficit. You know, uh, I think it's—I don't want to get it wrong, but maybe a couple percent is left over from the stimulus, um, or, or is it a percentage of, of one percent? I forget. It's, but it's—you know—it's mostly spent out. It is no longer adding to the deficit. Um, it did add eight hundred billion dollars to the debt, um, although I describe in the book how a lot of this is done in ways that were, you know 
sounds crazy for an $800 billion bill that's put on the national credit card, but was done in some very fiscally responsible ways. Um, you know, spending now that will reduce spending in the future. For example, federal energy efficiency, where you invest now in, in uh, you know, making a building greener so that federal utility bills will be lower in the future or uh, or by repairing repairing roads instead of building new ones right when you build a new road you increase your maintenance budget and your the deficit in the future while when you fix a road that's one less road that you have to fix um, so there was a lot of this sort of fix it first mentality um, that said it is adding to the debt the most important thing to remember about the debt is that the thing that blows up blows up the federal debt is when the economy stinks. Um, you know that's what uh, when people don't have jobs and when corporations don't have profits, tax revenues go way down and deficits go way up and the debt explodes. Um, if I have in my book actually, I have some graphs of the debt and you can see like the vast majority of it was the Bush tax cuts. Um, some of which Obama extended, right? All of which Obama extended. The uh, the Bush the Bush wars and security spending, which Obama did not expend. You know, he, he ended the war in Iraq. Um, is winding down Afghanistan some, um, but uh, you know the, the security apparatus is still here. The prescription drug benefit, which you know Obama didn't repeal or anything, um, and then uh, and then the Great Recession. That's the main thing that's caused the deficit, right? And uh, the debt. When you look in the long term, the driver of deficits and debt is even simpler. It's rising healthcare costs. Um, like the federal, if you look at the federal budget as they plan it out in the future, federal spending looks like a sidewalk. Healthcare looks look healthcare costs look like a ski slope. And until we get healthcare costs under control. Um, through Medicare and Medicaid, that's what could bankrupt the country um, and lead to a, a real disaster. And obviously, Obamacare is a first effort. But the people who said, you know, there, there actually was a real-time test of whether, you know, whether adding to the debt. You know, some people said you can't add to the debt. The stimulus is a bad idea because it's going to blow up interest rates and it's going to create inflation. And inflation has remained very low and interest rates have been historically low. So, so far, those people have been totally wrong. I mean, you can never say it could never happen. Um, and at some point, obviously, we can't keep spending a lot more than we're taking in. But uh, right now, the main reason we're doing that is because unemployment is still 8%. Thank you so right? much. We'll Thank see you, you at the reception. Thank you.